I'm Doug Fern, and this is my take on music recording. We're going to start out by talking a little bit about the history of music recording. And if you think of history as something dull you took in school that was a memorization of dates and events and people, this isn't going to be exactly like that at all. I'm more interested in how the technology changed the music and how the music changed the technology. And that's going to be the focus. We usually think of the beginning of the recorded music era as Edison's phonograph, which was patented in 1877. Edison wasn't the first to record sound, but prior to Edison, it was mostly a research tool that scientists used in order to analyze audio waves. So it was never really meant to be heard by anybody. It was just a a scientific tool. But Edison realized that this could be a commercial product and recording music and putting it out there for people to buy could be very profitable. Edison's system of recording was entirely acoustical and mechanical. It didn't involve electricity in any way. The sound was picked up by a large horn, which could be many feet across, and that funneled the sound pickup down to a diaphragm, the end of the horn, which was mechanically coupled to a stylus, which engraved a facsimile of the music onto a revolving wax cylinder. This didn't work really well, but people were amazed that it worked at all. And in fact, critics at the time proclaimed that it was a perfect reproduction of the music. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever heard anything that was a perfect reproduction of the music. But... It was such an amazing thing for people to hear this that they believed that it was perfect. In reality, those early recordings had many defects. For one thing, the frequency response of the recording was quite limited, from about three or 400 hertz up to maybe 2.5 kilohertz. That's less than three octaves of our 10-octave range of hearing. So it was just a tiny window of the audio spectrum. The sound was also highly distorted. Huge amounts of distortion went along with the audio signal. And the recordings were very noisy. The only way music could be recorded was for the performers to gather around this large horn and play. And it turns out that certain instruments didn't record well at all because they fell outside of the range of the frequency response, or the distortion levels were so high that the instrument was really unlistenable. And this changed the way the music of the time was recorded, because they discovered some instruments, like the stringed bass, couldn't be heard at all, or just faintly. And so a lot of times that was replaced by a tuba. And female vocalists really didn't sound good at all. They did not do well with all that distortion and limited frequency range. But the male tenor voice recorded pretty well, comparatively speaking. And so tenors became very popular during that era. And so did brass bands, because they recorded pretty well too. Now, of course, there was no way to mix these things. They were strictly monaural. And the balance between the instruments had to be achieved by placing people at various distance from this horn, depending on their loudness. So if you look at photos from those early sessions, you'll see people crammed right up against this horn 
playing the quieter instruments, it must have been very uncomfortable to play that way because you were practically sitting on top of the next person. And on the other hand, the people that played loud instruments like drums or brass instruments would be placed much farther away. It must have been very difficult for the players to perform that way. Prior to the music recording era, if you wanted to hear music, you either had to go someplace to listen to it or make it yourself. And of course, most people had to go someplace to listen. Because of this, music was a social occasion, and you were always listening in a group of people. could be large, it could be small, but it was a group activity. But with the advent of recording, it became possible to listen to a recording all by yourself. And this really changed the way people interacted with the music, because prior to that, a performance would be done and gone, and all you had left of it was your memory of it. With the recording, it became possible to listen to the same performance over and over again, and that would reveal any errors or lack of good interpretation of the music. And that changed the way people performed for recording because they knew that people would be listening to this over and over again, perhaps for years and years, and they had to focus on making it as perfect as they could. So it really changed the way people performed. Another serious drawback of this early recording system, which really persisted until about 1950, was the lack of sufficient recording time that would fit on a cylinder or later on a disc. The recordings were limited to about two and a half minutes of music. So this changed the way people composed and performed songs because prior to that, they could be any length and people could stretch out a song as long as the attention span of the audience. But now they were limited to this two and a half minute segment and it really changed the way songs were written. Needless to say, classical music didn't do well at all in this format because most classical compositions range from about 20 minutes to 40 minutes or longer, and it had to be broken up into two-and-a-half-minute segments. That music does not take well to being chopped up like that. So classical recordings were made, but they weren't really widespread because of the interruption every two-and-a-half minutes to change the record. This system of acoustical recording persisted into the 1920s, and although there were incremental improvements in the technology, it basically sounded pretty much the same as it did when Edison first developed it. But by the late 1920s, it became possible to use microphones, amplifiers, and an electromagnetic cutting head to produce the records rather than purely acoustically. This resulted in a huge improvement in the audio quality. And although some of the problems were addressed, it was still limited to two and a half minutes, and the recordings still had fairly high levels of distortion and a lot of noise. Some of that noise was due to the material used to make the records, which was shellac, which was not only brittle and easily broken, but had a large amount of surface noise. Another drawback, even with the electrical era of recording, was the microphones themselves. Now, typically, in the recording sessions of that period, only one microphone was used, and that really persisted to a large extent 
right up until around 1950 or beyond. Even though the technology existed to mix multiple microphones, most recording sessions were done with just one mic. And the microphones they used were carbon microphones, which were basically a derivative of a telephone microphone. Carbon microphones were used on telephones up until around 1980. And although they have many advantages in terms of being very rugged and reliable, the problem with them is that they're extremely noisy. So there was a quest for a better microphone. Bell Laboratories in the U.S. patented the condenser microphone in the 19-teens, but there was really no practical way to make those that would be usable because the early versions of condenser microphones were extremely noisy and sensitive to the air quality around them. So if the humidity was high, they'd be much noisier. So it took a long time before practical condenser microphones came along in the 1930s. Researchers understood the concept of a dynamic microphone for many decades, but they weren't really practical to produce because they required permanent magnets. A dynamic microphone operates on the principle of a diaphragm which intercepts the sound and vibrates in response to it, which is mechanically coupled to a coil of very fine wire, and that very fine wire moves through an intense magnetic field which generates a minute electrical signal. This is basically the same principle as the way generators for power are still done today, but of course this is on a much smaller scale. And the problem was there were no permanent magnets with sufficient energy in order to make a dynamic microphone work. So it wasn't until about 1930 when researchers came up with better magnetic materials that permanent magnets for microphones became practical. And that allowed the development of the dynamic microphone, which is basically still used today, and the ribbon microphone, which is really a variation on the dynamic microphone principle. A ribbon microphone dispenses with the diaphragm and coil of wire and instead uses a thin aluminum ribbon that's suspended in a very high magnetic field. And that ribbon becomes not only the diaphragm for the microphone, but also the wire moving in the magnetic field that generates the audio signal. This was the holy grail of microphones in the 1920s. Everybody was trying to develop a practical ribbon microphone because they knew that it would be vastly superior to the carbon microphone and superior to the regular dynamic microphone. And this was because the ribbon, being very thin and lightweight, responded almost instantly to the sound hitting it and recreated that sound with much better fidelity than any other microphone type available. One of the pioneers in the development of the ribbon microphone was Harry Olson at RCA Laboratories in the U.S. Dr. Olson was not only a scientist, but he also understood what music was supposed to sound like. And as he developed his prototypes of the microphone, he not only measured them using facilities that he designed to do that, but he also took them out and recorded actual music and voices and compared how they sounded with previous versions of the microphone. 
That became the RCA 44 series of microphones, which was produced up through the 1970s. If you look at photographs of recording sessions from the 1930s, most of the microphones you see in those sessions were ribbon microphones, and the majority of them were the RCA 44 with its classic kind of diamond shape. If you're wondering what the 44 sounded like, you're actually listening to it right now because the microphone I'm using to record this is a modern version, but an exact replica of the RCA 44. This one's made by Audio Engineering Associates, and it's really my favorite microphone for many things. And I find it truly remarkable that the first really high-fidelity microphone ever developed, still to this day, is one of the best-sounding microphones ever made. The ribbon microphone and later the condenser microphone brought the recording quality up another notch, but you were still dealing with shellac records, two and a half minutes, high distortion, limited frequency response, and so on. The microphones and everything else in the recording chain was far superior in terms of the audio quality than the recording medium. Despite all those limitations, there's still some really excellent recordings from the 1930s that uh, still sound pretty good to us today, even with their limited frequency response. Researchers in the area of music recording realized that a superior system would be a magnetic recorder, and this consists of a magnetic recording head, which is basically a coil of wire around an iron core, which forms an electromagnet. Now, if you put DC through an electromagnet, it becomes magnetized. When you remove the voltage from the electromagnet, the magnetism disappears. But if you change that from a direct current, like from a battery, to an audio signal from an amplifier, the magnetic field varies according to the frequency and the intensity of the audio signal. And if you're able to move a magnetizable medium past that head at a constant rate, you can record the audio as magnetic variations in that medium. This was done in the 1930s using wire recorders, which used a spool of steel wire that was transported through the recording head, and as the wire passed by, it was magnetized according to the audio that was fed into the recording head. This could be played back by reversing the process because the magnetized steel wire passing by this recording head would induce a very minute, very minute signal into the coil of wire, and that could be amplified and recreated back into the original sound. The problem with the wire recorder was it was really awful sounding. It was worse than the shellac disc, but did have the advantage of theoretically unlimited recording time. But the wire recorder had limited frequency response, very high distortion, very high noise level, so it was never seriously considered for music recording. And what wire recorders there were were used primarily for dictation and, and training. They really weren't ready for mass production as a music source. However, in Germany in the late 1930s and early 1940s, scientists had developed a different kind of magnetic recorder, 
which utilized a plastic tape with a magnetic material coated onto it, basically iron oxide, which we think of as rust. This, along with some other technological improvements in the concept, resulted in recordings that were pretty good and certainly better than the shellac disc quality. At the end of World War II, an engineer in the military, Jack Mullen, came across some of these German-made tape recorders and had them shipped back to his home in California, where he continued to experiment with them. He realized that this could be a commercial product of immense value. He partnered with the Ampex Company, which was a military contractor during the war, and now needed some new direction to go to utilize their manufacturing facilities. But it was going to take a lot of money to bring this product to market. There still was a lot of research and development that had to be done. And the funding for this was provided by entertainer Bing Crosby, who was extremely popular at this time and had network radio show that was broadcast throughout the country and because of the time zone differences, he had to repeat the program a couple of times at minimum in order to cover the proper times for each section of the country. The idea of being able to record his show with perfect fidelity and play it back when needed really appealed to him, so he was willing to put the millions of dollars in development into the tape recorder. Also during that period after World War II, Columbia Records was experimenting with an improved disc system. They developed a new disc, which they called a long plane disc, or LP, which changed the technology completely. For one thing, it used a different plastic material, vinyl, rather than the shellac of the 78s. And this reduced the noise significantly. The vinyl surface is much quieter than shellac. They also were able to make the width of the groove for the recording stylus and playback stylus much narrower. They called this microgroove because it was so much smaller than the old standard groove 78. And because of the improvements obtained with the vinyl material, they were able to reduce the revolution speed to 33 and a third RPM, which meant they could get 20, 22 minutes of music on the side of a disc. This was a huge revolution in the way music could be distributed. This was especially beneficial to classical music because having to change the record every 20 minutes was certainly superior to changing it every two and a half minutes. But it also created a new problem for pop music because still to this day, that two and a half minute length of a song persists in popular music today, even though gradually over the years that time frame has increased. So now typically records are three and a half, four minutes long, but they still were relatively short. That meant you could put five or six songs on the side of an LP, which was great because people could buy it and listen through it and hear one song after another. However, the problem was that the performers had to actually perform all five or six songs, one right after another, with just a few seconds in between, and perform each one of them perfectly. If you made a mistake on the last song, you had to go back and do the whole thing over again. 
Now, I'm sure there were performers that could pull this off, especially if the music was all scored out and played by musicians that were used to playing like that. But for a lot of music, it just wasn't practical. The answer, of course, was the tape machine, because on tape, you could record the song one at a time, multiple times if you wanted to, and then later assemble a collection of songs by cutting and splicing the tape so that you had a whole album side in one sequence. Even though you may have recorded it at different days, different places, it didn't matter anymore. Also, for better or worse, magnetic tape recording made it possible to edit the music, which means if you had a song that was recorded and it was well-performed up until, say, the last verse, and then somebody made a mistake or the performance became uninspired or whatever, it was possible to cut and splice that tape and choose another performance of it where the, the last verse was better performed. Up until this point, all the recordings ever made were all monaural. There was no stereo, although experiments with stereo went back a long, long way. At the end of the 19th century, for example, if you lived in a major city that had an opera or concert hall, you could s subscribe to a service that provided live music from that venue to your home through dedicated telephone lines. And it was practical to use two microphones on the stage to feed two different telephone lines, which at your home would be fed to two different telephone receivers. You can put one to each ear and hear the performance in stereo. This was long, long before it became practical to distribute music in stereo, but people got a taste of it if they were able to subscribe to this service. In the 1930s, Alan Blumlein, a brilliant EMI engineer who worked at Abbey Road Studios, developed an entire stereo recording and playback system that was designed to provide stereo playback for the consumer. He developed stereo microphones, stereo amplifiers, and most importantly, a way to record stereo on a disc in one groove, which in simplified terms, puts the left channel on one side of the groove and the right channel on the other side of the groove, and that can be played back, separated back into the left and right channels and fed to separate speakers. This was all theoretical, though, and he made recordings that way that worked very well, but mass producing it proved to be beyond the technology of the day. With the introduction of magnetic tape recording, stereo became feasible, because there was no reason why you couldn't put more than one track on a piece of recording tape. The original Monaro tape recorders used quarter-inch wide tape, and it was easy to do a special recording head that split that quarter-inch into two narrower tracks for the left and right channel. However, there was no practical way to get this to the consumer, so everything was still mono, and in fact, the mono was the definitive version of most recordings, even when stereo became practical, up through some of the 1970s. When Ampex introduced a version of their tape machine that was two-track and could record stereo, there were many recording studios, particularly at the bigger record companies, who brought those in for experimental purposes. 
and many recording sessions during the 1950s were recorded simultaneously to a mono recorder and also to a stereo recorder. The stereo version was still considered experimental and often was not saved, or if it was saved, it never was released that way. But it was just something that they ran in order to gain knowledge about the technology. Also during the 1950s, three-track recorders using half-inch wide tape became available. Many of the recordings from the 1950s were done three-track like that. And with the three-track recording system, you could record the vocal on one track, all the instruments on another, and then later you could mix the relative volumes of the music and the vocal, something that could not be done prior to that after the fact. It was a short step to going to a four-track recorder, which gave you even more versatility, and the track count just kept going up after that. But there was one innovator in the early 1950s that was a decade or more ahead of the rest of the recording industry, and that was Les Paul. He's best known as a guitarist, but he's really a multi-instrumentalist, and he realized that given enough tracks, he could perform all the instruments himself. He had Ampex make him a special 8-track recorder, which used 1-inch wide tape, and this allowed him and his wife, Mary Ford, to record extremely innovative records that were unlike anything anybody had ever heard prior to that. And he could layer multiple guitars or other instruments, and Mary Ford could add additional harmony parts to her vocals. This was totally new. But the 8-track tape recorder did not become mainstream in recording until into the 1960s. And almost as soon as 8-track recording was established, the tape recorder manufacturers came out with 16-track tape machines, which used 2-inch wide tape, and not long after that, 24-track recorders still on 2-inch tape. And that became the standard for another decade or so. We'll talk more about this in a future show on multi-track recording. Scientists in the 1950s were working on a stereo disc system, which would allow them to distribute the recordings in stereo. The system adopted was largely based on Alan Blumlein's 1930s concept, and it worked pretty well, but there were very few consumers that had the equipment necessary to play back the music in stereo. As a consequence, stereo was still considered a, a low-volume format for records, and if a stereo record was put out, it was certainly accompanied by a monaural version, which outsold it by a huge margin. And this persisted for a long time after stereo became pretty well established, and it wasn't until the 1970s that record companies abandoned the mono version of recordings entirely and just focused on stereo. Scientists in the 1920s at Bell Laboratories and other research laboratories around the country and around the world realized that there was another way to record audio. Instead of using an analog system like the disc or a tape recorder, audio signals can be converted into a digital signal, basically an on-off one or zero system. Bell Labs had figured out the whole concept of digital recording 
by the early 1930s and developed all the technology that we use today to encode audio into a digital format. However, digital recording was not practical at that time because we just did not have the recording medium that could handle that. However, Bell Laboratories, which of course was the research arm of the telephone company in the United States, realized that digital audio could be helpful in the telephone system. So by the mid-1950s, they were already using digital audio for long-distance telephone calls, where the audio from a telephone was converted into a digital signal, sent over the lines as a digital signal, and then converted back into an analog audio signal at the other end of the circuit. But this still wasn't practical for a recording. In the 1960s and 1970s, talk about digital audio recording was quite prevalent, and people immediately saw there could be many advantages to recording in digital over the existing analog services. And we knew for sure that the signal-to-noise ratio could be vastly improved with digital over an analog system. In the 1970s, some digital audio products were available for the recording industry, basically things that delayed the signal or added reverberation to it, things that could be done in an analog domain, but were much more versatile in a digital domain. But actually preserving digital recording took a little bit longer. And during the 1980s, several manufacturers came out with digital audio tape recorders, which are basically the same as their analog counterparts, but they recorded the signal on the tape as a digital signal rather than as an analog signal. This was an interesting advancement, but it had some drawbacks, such as the limited recording time on a reel because you had to run the tape at a fairly high speed. And also, it wasn't really practical to edit that tape. You could cut and splice it to assemble a master with individual songs, but you couldn't really properly edit us within a song. With the advancement of computer technology and higher capacity hard disk drives, recording audio in the digital domain became much more practical in the 1990s. Today, almost all recording is done digitally using a computer and a hard disk or solid state drive. On the consumer side of music, the LP remained the dominant distribution medium, although there were available music on tape cassettes, which were convenient, especially in a car, but fidelity-wise, they, they weren't really all that great. In 1982, the compact disc was introduced, which was a digital system for the consumer market. This is probably the only time in recorded music where the consumer version of recorded music was in advance of the recording technology used in the studio. In the 1980s, it was rare to have a digital recording session. It was still all done analog. The compact disc soon took over the market. It was an amazing transformation as people abandoned the LP and went to the compact disc. It was a huge benefit to the record companies because they could resell all the albums that had been released on LPs as CDs 
and sell more product. The CD format offered many advantages. It was quieter than the LP. It held more music. You didn't have to flip the disc over. And the size of the medium was much smaller, so storage space was less. It did change the presentation, though, because with the LP format, you had a 12 by 12 palette to do photographs, artwork, liner notes, and so on. And with the CD, that was shrunk down to a fraction of that size. So it made it much more difficult to have compelling artwork and extensive notes on the CD. By about the turn of the 21st century, it became possible to actually transfer music files across the internet. And this, again, changed the way the consumers got their music. In the early days of music distribution over the internet, it really wasn't practical to transfer full-resolution files of audio. Because the files were too large, and most people used dial-up modems to connect to the internet, and on top of that, Storage was still rather expensive and limited in size. Very clever schemes were developed in order to limit the size of the files by using psychoacoustic principles, which allowed up to 90% of the file size to be eliminated and still have relatively good-sounding audio. Formats such as MP3 can sound really quite amazingly good, considering how much of the original we've thrown away in order to conserve that bandwidth. Today, of course, bandwidth and storage are no longer a big issue for most people, so it's practical to send full-size, high-resolution audio files, and this is becoming more popular. For a long time, there was an irony that as the professional recording systems became higher and higher quality, the consumer format was actually going backwards. But now we have the technology and the resources available to reverse that trend and provide the listener with quality comparable to what we hear in the recording studio. In future shows, we'll delve more deeply into some of these topics as we discuss the recording process and how it relates to the listener. This has been my take on music recording. I'm Doug Fern, and I'll see you next time.